like 2,000 pounds of Legos in my parents' basement back home. And we'll just put it this way. They're not very happy about the space and amount of room that it takes up. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Jacob Peters. Jacob is a serial community builder, starting at the age of 10 with a serious passion for Legos and a knack for bringing people together. He spent the past few years building a community of data scientists at a very unlikely place, a big bank on Wall Street. Today, he's the co-founder of Comsor, which is a powerful new tool that helps organizations better understand and measure their communities. Jacob works at the intersection of technology, data, and community. So in this episode, we take a dive into the math of community. Let's jump right into it. Jacob, welcome to the show. Super excited to chat with you today. Thank you, Marsha. I'm so excited to be here. So to kick these episodes off, I always like to chat about the guest journey and learn a little bit about how you actually became a community builder. I think we all had such a unique journey to actually becoming a community builder, and we all come from so many different walks of life. So for you, I know that you had a really unique start in the community world. Can you tell me a little bit about what AFOL means and what drew you to this community? <laughs> That's a good way to put it. So my story started as the 13-year-old kid that never truly grew out of his childhood hobby of playing with Legos. And yes, by Legos, I do mean the child's plastic building block toy. And realized as I became a teenager that it was something that could be more than just a hobby for playtime. And in fact, it turned for me into my journey into the community world, as well as my first, I guess, startup business, you could say. I discovered one day after amassing a sizable Lego collection for a 13-year-old, uh, an online community of, of adult Lego enthusiasts, and they call themselves by the term AFL, stands for Adult Fan of Lego. And come to find out, there were actually dozens, if not hundreds, of different communities and forums and vibrant places online where adults, so people that were basically doing this as a, kind of their full-time side projects, creating, amassing, collecting, building creations out of, of Legos. So I got super involved in this world. I started off as just being an active member in different Lego forums, kind of learning all different techniques and different ways in which you could put bricks together that go beyond just the traditional sets that Lego as a company would put out and sell. So people were building massive custom creations with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pieces. Eventually, as my Lego collection started growing bigger and bigger, I realized that there was kind of this arbitrage opportunity in the Lego space and in, in the Lego industry. And by arbitrage, I essentially mean that there's like a risk-free way to capture value from a market or a system. So I discovered that I could go out to secondhand marketplaces like Craigslist or just people's garage sales or yard sales in their, in their front yards where kids were getting rid of massive collections of loose, discombobulated Lego pieces. And what I would do is I would buy these collections and then I would part out the individual sets from them. And my pattern recognition got really good. So I could see a giant lot of Legos and be able to say, okay, I know that that little piece right there is a part of this set. And that set is worth, you know, X number of dollars. And I could buy this whole lot and sell it back by just parting out that set for like a 10, 20 X ROI or return on investment in some cases. So that was actually 
kind of how I went from being involved in the Lego community to starting my first ever business, which was an e-commerce store where I'd basically go out and buy these secondhand Lego lots, piece together rare sets, and then sell them for a sizable ROI. That is so cool. I absolutely love Lego. So I think that's so amazing. Are you still involved in that community at all? Like, do you still have time for it? Unfortunately, I think I've grown out of it a little bit. And part of the reason for that is just I frankly don't have the time. But I will say I do have close to a ton. And yes, I do mean a metric ton, like 2000 pounds of Legos in my parents' basement back home. And we'll just put it this way. They're not very happy about the space and amount of room that it takes up. That's hilarious. I love that. So what did you end up studying in post-secondary? And what were some of your other interests? I became really fascinated by technology and computers. But when it came to choosing a field of study, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I ended up pursuing a degree in business, but realized very quickly that there was more to be desired from the technical angle. So I ended up throwing some computer science classes in there and ended up graduating with a hybrid degree of finance, business, as well as computer science. And how did you end up starting your career out of that? So I ended up blanketing my resume and found myself up working in New York City at a big bank of all places. And while I was there, my first few months, I started to realize that banking and the finance industry maybe wasn't for me, but I was fortunate enough to meet the head of a brand new team that was building out a data science unit to basically figure out ways to make this big, old, clunky, you know, 150-year uh, longstanding institution more data-driven. And this is kind of where my career started to be defined by what I like to say is people taking chances on me, uh, because I ended up kind of networking my way onto this team, and I was completely unqualified for the role. So I had to teach myself an entirely new skill set, but my boss kind of saw something in me, believed that I had what it would have taken, and I ended up finding my way onto that team full-time, and that's kind of where my career started to progress. This is a theme that kind of comes up a lot throughout this podcast and just, you know, other people that I speak to, this concept of imposter syndrome and, and feeling like we're kind of out of our element, but then really finding our way through it. How did you find community and belonging when you were just starting out in your career and you were feeling that sense of imposter syndrome? So the community started an interesting place. It actually started within the bank that I was working on. And it was born out of a conversation that I was fortunate enough to have with the CEO of our line of business. So it was me and her at a lunch, just having a one-on-one, -on -one, catching up. She's always interested in kind of asking millennial people or, or folks in my generation things that we could do better since we are such a, an institution that's kind of mired in bureaucracy a lot of times. I told her candidly that I thought that as a bank, we're at risk of being out-innovated by the Googles and the Facebooks of the world and that we're, we're hemorrhaging young tech talent to these other companies. It's a big risk for the company in the long term. And she seemed to agree with me. And she told me that if I felt that strongly, She'd be willing to put together a budget and work with me to start kind of a, an internal innovation team or an internal community, if you will, to solve some of those challenges. So we ended up co-developing what we called like a, an internal innovation incubator, where we basically found ways to make the bank more innovative, replaced a bunch of outdated processes with new inventive ways of doing things and kind of create this internal community of people who saw the world a little bit differently and how the bank could really truly evolve and become more innovative over the next five, 10 years. That's really incredible. How did you recruit people to join this community and how did you really grow it? So the biggest thing was getting executive level adoption. Things are oftentimes very hierarchical and it can be challenging for employees that are kind of earlier on in their careers or towards the lower end of the leadership totem pole to bubble up initiatives like that. So we made sure to get a lot of different senior stakeholders bought in and on our side, and we're able to kind of create a, a process from there. It's a common theme that I see a lot of community builders act upon, and that's finding you know key influencers, key decision makers, or people that have a lot of clout and power that you can leverage to kind of get a 
community kindling in the early days. So you had that internal community within your company. And then I know that you also had another community called Kaggle. What was that? And how did that get started? My itch just was not being scratched enough in terms of bringing people together. So I ended up accidentally starting what eventually became one of New York City's largest communities of data science professionals that was outside of the bank. So this wasn't just people that worked at my company. And it was actually born out of a really kind of serendipitous moment. And it's funny, this goes back to Craigslist. So like I said earlier in the episode, not only did Craigslist help me start my initial Lego business, but it also helped me start one of my first ever communities, which was this community of data scientists in New York. And one day I was just on Craigslist searching for furniture for my apartment because I just moved into a new place and was looking for a couch and a bed and all these different furniture items. And for some reason, I just decided to search data science. I don't know what popped in my head. I don't even know if it was accidental, but next thing I know, I'm reading these classifieds of, of people saying, hey, like I'm looking for data science study buddies or people to meet up with to upskill our data science skill sets. And I'm like, wow, this seems super cool. I want to reach out to these people. So ended up emailing this random stranger on Craigslist. We got coffee, really hit it off, had this hypothesis that there were hundreds, if not thousands of other data science-minded folks in New York City that just didn't really have a gathering place to meet outside of work. So that ended up turning into Kaggle New York City. And originally it was just me, this guy, three or four other friends, we'd get together in coffee shops and hack on data science, machine learning problems on weeknights. And then next thing we know, we start a meetup chapter, we start a Slack group, the thing balloons to 6,000 people. We get an official partnership with Microsoft in Times Square, where we'd have various speakers from them. The community really grew and evolved very quickly that sounds so awesome. <laughs> Love that start at Craigslist. But it's so true. Like if you're looking for something and it doesn't exist, the chances are that there's tons of other people who are also seeking out this community. So congratulations on starting that. I think that's so amazing. So let's shift gears and jump into what you're building now. Can you tell me a little bit about the start of Comsor and what is it for anybody who's maybe not familiar? Yeah, so we've been building Comsor for, gosh, just over a year and a half now. And the initial version of Comsor was actually born out of a series of pain points that I was experiencing running my community of data scientists in New York. The number one pain point actually was around monetization. So I was putting a lot of time and energy into this group, in some cases, spending a lot of money out of pocket. And there was just really kind of no ethical way to find a return on my time or bring in income to the community that we could invest in it to make it better and bigger and, and stronger and put on even more impressive events. So put my head together with my good friend, Mac Redden, who also came from community building world. He had started and sold one of the world's largest Minecraft networks a number of years before. So he kind of came from the, the gaming community world. But we decided to tackle this initial problem of helping community leaders and community builders find ethical ways to create income for their groups. And that initial business model was very different than what we're building now. But it was essentially a marketplace where we could connect community builders like myself with companies that wanted to get in touch with them for various different things like sponsorships, targeted paid job postings, partnerships, connecting speakers. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different transactional units that we had flowing through this marketplace where we were connecting communities with companies. And we did that for a number of months. We scaled it up to a few hundred communities with a, with a few million members and users across all of them. But after about six to seven months of, of doing this, we kind of came to the conclusion that it was really challenging to scale. 
And while developing the marketplace, we'd also started talking to more and more community builders and community leaders at companies, as opposed to people like myself that were running these large independent, I guess, hobbyist or indie communities, as we like to call them. And the more and more we talked to companies, the more and more that they told us that they'd actually rather invest money if they're going to spend marketing budget on getting in touch with communities on communities of their own. And we heard this again and again and again. And that's when we realized that there was probably a market signal that we should absolutely listen to. So that's when the company actually pivoted into to what we're building now, which is more of a, a full service operating system for communities and, and professional organizations. I know that you left a really stable and prestigious job to start this. When did you know that it was time to go all in? And you know, what was the experience like for you? I'll be honest with you, Marsha. We quit our jobs way too prematurely. <laughs> we had our first paid sponsorship transaction on the marketplace, which was about four weeks in from the initial idea. And we thought that was enough validation to quit our full-time jobs, go all in. And little did we know it would just be an absolute slog of six to nine months with really minimal revenues, minimal traction, and just a, not a clear picture of what a long-term sustainable business model would be. So those were some very, very challenging days. And you know, if I could do it all over again, it's hard to say that I would have waited until we had more clear sign of traction that we could have gotten a long-term business model working sooner because I'm not sure if we'd be where we are today if that wasn't the case. So I guess you can't live life with regrets, even though we, we totally quit our jobs too prematurely and threw ourselves into a very uncertain personal financial situation. Sometimes you just have to go for it. And like hindsight is twenty twenty. sometimes, but there's never really the right time. Were your friends and family supportive of the decision or, or was there a little bit of pushback? Initially, absolutely not. Everyone looked at me like I had 10 heads and I was crazy when I told them. Ultimately, after a few months, and even though it was challenging to find a working business model in the early days, everyone just saw how much fun I was having, how much I loved working for myself and kind of being this you know, independent entrepreneurial creative spirit, which is uh, you know, something that I've always known about myself, but never really was put in a position to fully realize until we were out on our own building a business. So ComSource started to evolve over time. You mentioned some of those pivots. When did you start the community aspect of it? And, and how did that idea come about? And what were the first steps to building it? When we were kind of formulating around what the long-term business model of ComSource was going to be, as well as the vision we started to develop this hypothesis based on a number of different companies and organizations that we talked to and learn more and more about their communities. And that was the future of marketing is going to be community driven, especially in the B2B space. So what we found is that companies that were building communities as marketing initiative or as a way to basically build a trusted relationship with people first before a sales conversation even happened, or just frankly, offer them free resources with nothing and no expectation of anything in return that these companies were doing really well. So we got the idea to start a community for our new target audience and our target persona, which was the community builder. And like I said, we really had no expectation of selling to these people. We really just wanted to build a trusted relationship with folks in the industry, let them know what we were all about, provide them a ton of value and, and resources. And that was the start of community chat. So that launched, I'd say in early January of, of this year, 2020. That's awesome. I think you're probably the first guest actually that I've had on the podcast that started a community around COVID or like just before. So that community was always virtual, right? Or were you able to sneak in any in-person things for the community before lockdown sort of started? No, it was 100% virtual. And the other crazy thing is we decided very early on, I think around the same time, January, that our company would be fully remote as well. 
So in a pre-COVID era, we decided to make the decision that our team was going to be distributed forever and that we'd never have an in-person office and that we'd probably never meet 90% of our teammates through the duration of the company. So tell me about the start of ComChat. How did you first get the community going? Like, how did you get the word out about it? How did you get people to join? And how did you really grow it? Yeah, so when it comes to growing a community, there is generally two different ways that I think you can approach the cold start problem, which is the sense that it's really hard to go from zero to one and to go from no community to a community. And way number one is going what I like to call top down. And that's essentially means building an audience and then converting some of those most loyal audience members into community builders. And that's the way that we decided to take. The other path is going bottoms up, which is basically one by one kind of sending hand curated invitations to people in your network or folks in the, the space that you're trying to build a community around and almost building it together one by one word of mouth style. So we decided to go with the former and our approach was essentially let's create an audience and that audience is going to take the form of a weekly newsletter. There was a lot of content tweets and things being shared and created in community world, but there wasn't really that many great centralized resources or easy to consume digests of like things that had happened every single week in community world. So we basically got the idea to start a weekly newsletter where we'd go out to Twitter world, to the blogosphere, and we'd find the top five blogs and the top five tweets from community industry and put them together in a newsletter every single week. And that was the start of our audience. And that's where we decided to plant our stake in the ground. Then we decided to go from audience to community. So the next step in the progression of the group was to launch a Slack community. So this is where we can really start to build a many-to-many -many network. You know, we actually didn't even really have a product yet when we started this community. We just kind of had a conceptual idea of what a product would be and a big vision of the world of what the future of community was going to look like. So we actually used the community as a way to get really short, tight, quick feedback loops and a very close pulse on what our target persona, the community builder or the professional community manager was thinking about and what they cared about and the things that they were talking about every single day. And all of those conversations that we were able to monitor and participate in, in the Slack community became the fertile ground on which we were able to build the initial prototype. So what's next for ComSor and for ComChat? In order to talk about what's next, it would probably be important to touch on kind of how we see the vision of the community industry shaping out or the evolution of the community industry shaping out. So right now at most companies, the community manager is oftentimes just a very siloed role, sometimes very unclear as to who they report to because community can touch so many different functions of a business, right? In some organizations, it's, uh, it rolls up to product. In other organizations, it rolls up to customer success. In others, it's under customer support. And we very much see a future where community is going to get carved out as its own independent function. And community teams are going to get built around the community manager or the head of community. And community is no longer going to be kind of a siloed part of a business that's just kind of tangential to the corporations. We actually see community moving to be one of the central components and the core components of what makes an organization successful and what makes an organization tick. So you can kind of think of it as like a hub and spoke model where community is at the center, which involves all of your customers, your non-customers, the people that are in your network. And then it touches every single facet of a business, right? It can touch the product team because all the conversations and knowledge that's happening in the community and things that people are talking about, it's going to inform the product roadmap, the product development. It's going to inform customer success because community members are oftentimes 
much less likely to churn. There's a higher retention for community members. You know, it's going to touch sales and marketing because people that have been nurtured from a community marketing perspective are probably much better candidates for your sales pipeline or have a higher proclivity to buy your product. So there's all these different ways that community can touch components of a business. And I think right now it's very much siloed. So that's kind of the macro backdrop that we see happening over the coming years. And the big vision for Comsor is essentially to be the daily tool that these community teams use every single day to do their jobs, to grow their communities, to engage their members, to get an understanding of the impact that their community is having on those different components of the business. And that's why we're calling it the operating system, right? It is kind of the heart of an organization's and tactically, what that actually looks like is it's a series of different tools and products. The first one of which we're launching is our member CRM, which is kind of like a core database or 360 review of all of your community members, who they are, what they're all about, where they're engaging and participating with you on so that you can ultimately have a good understanding of who your members are, how you can best engage with them, and then understand what's working and what's not working, which is oftentimes a big blind spot for community teams. I'm like beyond excited about this vision and I'm totally on the same page as you. I think community is becoming something really big now and resources are really being invested in it and companies are really seeing how absolutely critical it is, especially I think with everything that's going on with COVID, I think that accelerated it in a lot of ways and community is what's going to set companies apart. I'd also love to see it really take more of a shape in education. You know, like we always start these episodes off with learning how people actually became a community builder. And I don't think I've encountered anybody yet who's like a really awesome, successful community builder who set out to be a community builder. And it's funny you ask what's up next for us at Comsore and Comchat. And I won't tease too many details because um, it hasn't launched yet. But we actually are working on a ton of educational programs and, and materials that we'll be releasing over the coming weeks and, and months to help not only ride the wave of community, but, but accelerate it and get people who you know maybe didn't set out to be a community builder or a community manager, or they're just starting to bring community into their company or their organization. I love that. That's super exciting. I can't wait to see some of those initiatives launch. So you're working at the intersection of technology, data, and community, which I think really gives you a very unique perspective into the industry. So I want to spend a little bit of time chatting about the math of community. We touched on this a little bit before, but you know, I think a lot of people kind of have trouble understanding the difference between an audience and the community, because I think community is becoming this buzzword and people just want to refer to the thing that they're building as a community. So I've had some pretty heated discussions with people who are or, you know, referring to their Instagram followers as a community or their newsletter as a community. How do you define an audience versus a community and what's some of the math behind that? Yeah. So for me, community is very much about math. And partly I'd say that's probably because of my background. But one of the best ways to delineate the difference between an audience and a community is in the mathematical ways in which people interact with one another. In order to illustrate what I mean by that, let's, let's take an example. So if you're building an audience on something, say like a Facebook page or a Twitter account or an Instagram, and you're able to amass 500 followers or 500 audience members, that actually is 500 one-to-one -one connections in the sense that you have a one-to-one -one relationship between yourself or the person creating the account and creating the content and each one of your followers. Now, if you're able to create a community, which is a many-to-many -many relationship among members, not between a creator, you're actually able to create exponentially many more connections between and among those members. So if you're able to create a community on Slack, for example, or a meetup chapter or on Discord or any other platform that helps facilitate these many, many interactions, and you amass a gathering of 500 people, that's actually 62,000 
different, unique relationships and pairings among those members that you can create. Whereas on a follower platform or network like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page, it's one-to-one as we talked about. So 500 versus 62,000, that's an exponentially large difference in terms of the value that you can create for members and between members. That's really interesting. That's such a good way to look at it. And I think that really puts it into perspective. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong at all with building an audience or creating incredible content that's helping people. But I think it's so important to be able to define the the difference between the two. And that's the perfect way to look at it. But on the flip side, I mean, just because there's exponentially more ways in which people can interact, it doesn't mean that it's better for everybody. And there's a a psychologist that's done a lot of research on, on this called Robert Dunbar. And he basically has theorized that there's like a cognitive upper bound or a limit on the total number of relationships that a person can kind of keep in their brain at a time. And he, he did this by studying like historical human kind of like tribal populations, pre-civilization, how many different people would interact with one another in a tribe. And he found that limits actually around a few hundred people. So it can be really challenging if you're a community member to actually keep all of that information and that kind of real life social network in your brain if you're in a community of a bunch of different people. Something else that I think is really interesting to explore is that, you know, like we said, community is becoming something that's becoming more accessible and, you know, more organizations and more people are looking into starting their communities and and doing so in really successful ways. What do you think is going to happen in like two to three years? Do you think we're ever going to hit peak community? Do you think things are going to become oversaturated? Peak community is inevitable. So is oversaturation. We're not there yet. I think if you just do a little bit of napkin math, especially in the, the B2B community space, which is where I spend a lot of my time, and you look at maybe you know every single major job title, like head of HR or head of this or head of that on LinkedIn, and, and a job title is often a very good thing to build a community around, right? Because people's sense of shared identity, right? So that's the reason they wake up in the morning a lot of times. And if you were to do some napkin math and look at the number of folks that are in every single industry, and then compare that with the number of communities that exist for these folks and the size of those communities, you'd find that most major industries really have like 90% of the market up for grabs or, or the mind share up for grabs in the sense that most of these people are not in communities yet. And maybe the more uh, community-minded or tech-savvy folks like you and I or a lot of the listeners, they'd say, oh, everyone I know is in a community and I'm in 20 communities. But I, I'm telling you the vast majority of the professional population is not in a community yet or really probably knows nothing about it. So I think there's a lot of green space, but we will see an exponential explosion beyond what we're seeing right now in the next two to three years. And once we hit that point, I mean, there's going to be a community or hundreds of communities in every single niche. People are going to have a lot of optionality and a lot of choice. And what's going to happen is only the best communities will survive and thrive. Absolutely. I think you you nailed it. It's going to be quality over quantity and people are really going to seek out the best communities for themselves. And I think that's kind of like it is in any industry that's booming. So I want to get some of your advice for listeners and for community creators out there. I think right now, a lot of listeners are really interested in creating virtual community events, but they might be overwhelmed by the sheer amount of tools that are out there. How do you think people can start and like, where can people start? Yeah, so I will start by saying a controversial opinion, and that's that I don't think the tool matters that much. I think the reason to gather and the processes that you create as a community manager and the experiences that you're able to create matter so much more than the tools themselves. And I think it's a big misconception that a great tool leads to a great community. Another one of my thoughts is that it's okay to use a diverse set 
of tools when facilitating and creating virtual experiences. I think there's another misconception that you kind of have to stick with one, two, or a core set of tools and use them over and over. But a good parallel to think about is if you were organizing in-person gatherings, so not so non-virtual events in a, in a pre-COVID or a post-COVID world, do you think it would make sense to tell all of your committee members to meet at the exact same place in the exact same location every single week, every single month, every single quarter? Maybe, maybe not. I'd argue that variety is good. Variety changes it up. So why not take a similar type of approach if you're facilitating virtual events, right? Use Zoom for one of your virtual happy hours. Then next time you have a speaker come in, use a platform like Crowdcast or decide to create a totally different type of virtual event that's a little bit more interactive on a platform like Hopin or Hey Summit. So I would just say that variety can be your friend and don't be afraid to have a large, diverse toolkit as a community builder, especially because a lot of these tools are now very low friction to use, very low friction to set up, somewhat inexpensive. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so true as well. And I think, you know, since you're doing this for your members and for your community, the best thing that you could do is ask, you know, after each event that you do, do a survey, ask them what they liked about it, what could have been better. And that could really shape your strategy moving forward. And I think people are a lot more forgiving with virtual events. I think people are really understanding these days that, you know, it's still somewhat of an experiment. We're trying new things and and how can we really get the most out of it and how can they contribute their own insights to it? 100%. Another great takeaway here is that the reason to gather and the habit that you can help people build is much more meaningful than the tool itself. You know, I hear all the time people deliberating between things like, ah, should I choose Facebook groups for my community? Should I choose Slack for my community? And I'd say that doesn't matter as much as your ability to create quality content for the community, make sure people have a clear understanding of like why they're gathering, what they're going to get out of the gathering and out of the community, as well as helping them build this into their daily habit flow and their daily workflow. I mean, in order for a community to be successful, you need two core things. One is that reason to gather. And then second, which is often overlooked, is a reason to re-engage. And oftentimes people do a great job at number one. You know, they build a community around a niche or a profession or a shared interest that people just love. And and there's a clear, strong reason for people coming together. But then they fail at making people come back and creating repeat members and loyal super users and power users and, and members that just can't get enough. And I think tools can sometimes impact this, right? So for example, you were to choose something like Slack and the target audience was B2B professionals. You know, there's a habit loop built in there in the sense that like a lot of these professionals are probably already using something like Slack for work. And it's a very strong and powerful draw because it's built into their habit flow. So let's shift gears again. I want to jump into your personal community and learn a little bit more about that. So what are some communities that you're part of outside of work and why are they meaningful to you? One of them is the one that I built, which is it's Kaggle New York City. So the community of data science professionals in, in New York, that community has a special place in my heart because it, it taught me a lot of lessons around what to do, what, what not to do when, when building a community. But the second one that I spend a considerable amount of time in is OnDeck, which is a community for founders and early stage entrepreneurs that are literally, quote, on deck for their next opportunity. <laughs> and I have never been part of a group of such high caliber quality driven, motivated individuals that they've been able to put together. They have a really strong reason to re-engage. They have quality programming and content where they bring in venture capitalists and industry experts and other successful founders to talk in these like very private one-on-one sessions with their members. And the whole thing just kind of evokes this feeling of magic, which is quite indescribable. And I've talked to community builders and community leaders every single day. I've been a member of hundreds of communities at this point, but I've never been part of 
a community that has this strong of a, a magnetic force that keeps me coming back for more. I totally understand that feeling. And it's sort of like you just feel like you're home, right? Like you feel like you totally belong in that community and it just something clicks. So this is a little bit of a strange question, but I love hearing people's answers to this. How do you choose your people? You know, like the five to six people that are closest to you, do you feel like you look for certain qualities or is it something that comes about more organically? So they do say that you're an average of your five best friends. And I wholeheartedly subscribe to that philosophy. So I'm very purposeful about the people that I spend a lot of, of time with. And those closest five to six for me, I would describe them as folks that aren't afraid to break out of the typical life loop. What I mean by that is I used to find myself always going to the same bars and the same things every weekend with the same friends and watching the same shows on Netflix and spending you know hours and hours a day on social media and realized that I just wasn't getting that much fulfillment out of it. But when I look around, you know, I see most of the world is kind of stuck in this kind of circular loop of, you know, eat, sleep, go out, Netflix, social media, repeat. And I'm like, wow, there's got to be more to life than this. And I'm not saying this to sound self-righteous and that my routine is better than anyone else's. I just realized that this wasn't me. And I wanted to seek out people that themselves sought out non-traditional experiences and that are not afraid to break out of these, these loops that were so entrapped in by the social media giants and the streaming gods. So those are the types of folks that I like to, to surround myself with and, and spend a lot of time with. That's so funny that you bring that up. It's been a very similar journey for me as well. And I had like very cliche, but I'm pretty sure I had like a quarter life crisis. I just like totally realized that that same thing that you said, like I felt like I was in this like endless loop and I was like, there has to be more to life than this, or there has to be more to my life than this. And I made some really huge changes. And, you know, I went from working in this like corporate company to one day just like quitting and leaving everything behind and moving to Tel Aviv to pursue a role within like a tiny startup and that's actually where I came across fuck up nights and I think that really shifted my life and in, in a lot of different ways and also really shifted what was my personal community and the types of people that, that I was drawn to so my last question for you is and I ask this of everybody on the podcast what does the word community mean to you I love this question so much and it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about and I, I really do think that a lot of people look at this word differently they have a different relationship with this word and if we asked 10 different folks on the street, you know, we'd probably get 10 different answers. So maybe mine might be a little bit more, more unique than, than you've heard before. But I like to think of community as being three things. It's part etymological in the sense that, you know, just definitionally, the word really does mean a reason to gather, right? It's, it's people coming around for a shared purpose in a many-to-many -many sense. I also think it's part mathematical, right? And we talked a little bit about some examples before as to why community can be so, so exponentially powerful. A way that I like to think about the mathematical component of community is that, you know, in a normal mathematical world, two plus two equals four. But in a community, two plus two can equal six in the sense that if you had two groups of two people, put them together to create a four person community, you'd actually have six unique different ways in which those people could connect with one another as opposed to four. If it was more of a, an audience based network, like we said. So community is just is exponentially more, more powerful as soon as you start to put human beings together. And then the third part of community for me is, is very emotional. And what I mean by that is that, like the best communities, they really do feel magical. And they invoke this, this strong, powerful, uh, emotional response from people. And they occupy a big portion of your mind share. A great community can be the first place that you go when you have a problem or a question. So it's, it's part etymological, part mathematical, part emotional for me. Well, that's a very thoughtful answer. And I, I think that sums it up perfectly. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I feel like I learned so much from this conversation. It was really awesome. Thanks, Marsha. I had a lot of fun. 
I had such a great time chatting with Jacob, and I hope you learned as much as I did from this episode. You can connect with Jacob on LinkedIn by searching for Jacob Peters or on Twitter and Instagram at J underscore Cub, spelled C-U-B. And you can learn more about Comsor and join the community at Comsor.com. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.